Overdrive. Hello and welcome to Overdrive, a program that proudly gives you the alternative facts to all aspects of motoring and transport. I'm David Brown. And in this program, we have new stories, including Toyota to deliver connected vehicles in a collaboration with two other companies. When the Nissan Duke was first launched 10 years ago, I struggled to like its outward design. I thought it was a bit cartoonish. The latest model is more mainstream, but our resident artist, Dean Oliver, has a different take. Vive la différence. In our interview, he explains why he really liked the first one. And in feedback, we have some comments about three utes we drove during the week and about the need for trucks to have standardised, or at least easily understood, instrumentation. We mentioned in the news how Alfred Brain was racing at Bathurst in a 1969 Holden Monaro. We debriefed with Fred on all the nuances of manhandling a big, old car around the famous circuit. Now, you can find more information at drivenmedia.com.au. All previous programs are available as podcasts on Spotify or iTunes. Or you can go to our Facebook page, Overdrive City. So let's get the program rolling. First, the news. Toyota Australia has established a collaboration with the Japanese KDDI organisation and Telstra to provide connected car capabilities. Connected cars can allow a driver to receive information from other vehicles and infrastructure such as traffic signals to adjust their driving, hopefully to improve safety. It is good and acceptable technology, but there is a need for overall management as car companies introduce this technology for their customers. The government must not lose control of the operation and management of how we use the system, which should maximise the benefit to all road users, not just the ones with new cars and new technology. One example might be, if cars can adjust their speed to catch green lights without stopping, then traffic on the main arterial may flow along constantly with no gaps, making turning into or out of the road next to impossible unless there are traffic lights. With many brands now offering quality products with many features, a prestige brand has to promote its new technologies and how easy it is to use. The features Jaguar has emphasised in its new XE medium sedan, a BMW 3 Series competitor, are an infotainment system with 10-inch screen, its own power source so that it can start immediately and sync two phones, software over the air that ensures that the system gets updates seamlessly and remotely, hopefully without change for change's sake. There's cabin air ionisation to improve interior air quality through nanotechnology. A wearable active key that can lock, unlock and start the vehicle without a conventional key fob. And an upgraded powertrain with an 8-speed transmission, all-wheel drive and a more powerful engine. Although the press material doesn't feel the need to mention how many cylinders it has. It's priced from around $70,000 drive away. The just-launched new Mazda BT-50 Ute has achieved the maximum 5-star safety rating. 
With utes often now used by families, it is credible to achieve this rating for all vehicles in the range, in part because of the long list of safety technology which is standard on all models. We drove several dual-cab utes recently and found that the Mazda felt secure on the road but had poor seating for the second row of passengers. For more than half of the models, a reversing camera is an $820 option and even the top model lacks some practical features like a tub liner. But they have a good reputation for reliability. Their two-wheel drive dual-cab ute starts at under $37,000. And the top of the range four-wheel drive is just under $54,000 to each figure add on-road costs. The historic touring cars are one of the more popular support races held during the annual Bathurst 1000 race meeting. One of the oldest but best-looking cars on the track was an orange 1969 Monaro driven by Fred Brain. It was in 1969 that Fred first watched the Bathurst race on television, which was won by Colin Bond in a Monaro. Third place in that event went to Des West and a young Peter Brock, his first stint at the mountain, also in a Monaro. It was a good car for the time. When Fred was preparing his Monaro for its first event many years ago, I asked the late great Peter Brock if he had any advice in driving one of these classic vehicles. My best advice is um, to put the brakes on very, very early. They've got nice steering, uh, they power down pretty well, but um, the braking department has to be respected. It's, it's not very strong. And that has been the news. Nissan has just celebrated 10 years of the launching of their compact SUV crossover, the Duke. I didn't think it would last that long. Its original design was distinctive, perhaps even cartoonish, a goggle-eyed city runabout. Now, we've been testing the latest model that comes back towards the norm, but still with some sense of its own flavour. Should it go that way, or should uh, it go uh, the way it was originally planned? Well, our resident... Our resident... Oh, sorry, my voice is breaking. Well, our resident artist, Dean Oliver, has been casting an artistic eye over the progression of the models. Dean, it was said to be originally combining a sense of energy and sportiness. Is that what you felt when you saw it? Yes, hello, David. Energy and sportiness. Um, it's probably not the words I would have used. No, I would have said futuristic. I mean, we're talking about a concept that originally was penned back for the... 2010, I think, Geneva Motor Show. So the concept was, uh, I think, first evolved in 2009. So, so we're looking at, you know, a good 10 years ago. And I think then it was futuristic. I don't think it was sporty or it didn't have that sports car sort of feel about it, but it, it had a futuristic, quite exciting feel about it. The designers were clearly just allowed to go to wherever they wanted to go by Nissan, which which I think was a, a tremendously brave thing to do uh, for Nissan to do back uh, 10 years ago. Go bravely where no man had been before. I see it far more as fashion than I see it as sportiness. One of the people that were involved in it, Matthew Weaver, who was at the time the senior exterior designer for Nissan in uh, Europe at the time, said, I was on the train one day and remember seeing a young man in a flat cap with a diamond skull on it. 
a bright t-shirt, a pinstripe jacket and trainers. It was an eclectic mix, but I thought if people don't have to conform, why should cars? Conformity is is kind of the death of fashion, and uh, fashion and style almost demand um, unconformity and and demands a real high level of uh, sort of exploration of, of what is possible with design. And, you know, I keep going back to the original concept of the Duke, which uh, I think is terrific. I'm looking at here at a photograph of the original concept and then how it sort of evolved through its first model. Uh, now, I think it's second uh, iteration. And it really has changed. Here we had a break in transmission. We will put Dean's montage on our Facebook page, Overdrive City, one word. I was posing the question to Dean that the old model had round lights set down low on the car. And now here we are in 2020 and the designers taking that original concept have sort of knocked all the the dramatic edges off it and the, the current car kind of looks backwards, I think, back to the 1990s rather than forward. I think that's a great shame because that original concept was terrific. It was smooth, it had sculptural form, uh, it was pretty well free of embellishments and it was quite, it was quite beautiful, like, like a Henry Moore sculpture. But the successive changes in design have added fussy details and to my eye, un- unnecessarily fussy detail. Uh, it's becoming more Picasso-ish and, and less Henry Moore-ish. It's now got angles where previously it had smooth forms. I don't like that. It's not to say it's a bad car, and technologically it's, uh, I'm sure it's, uh, it's making great, uh, great strides. But in terms of form, no, I think, um, I think it's going backwards there. Smoothness. As soon as you were talking there and uh, looking at your pictures of the first one, yes, all around the front, what, there's no bumper bar there, but there's hardly even a line there. There's a smoothness to it that doesn't have the angle and creases that are now so prominent in design. Looking at the first one, the top left-hand corner of our picture, which, as I say, is on our Facebook page, is the idea that it almost looks like a desert racing car designed by a yuppie. Oh, yes, there's a real sort of dune buggy influence there. In fact, one of the designers, I think, mentioned that they took from their inspiration active, youthful sports like snowboarding and dune buggies and that kind of thing. I think also having a lar- those large 19-inch wheels uh, and having those at each corner, so there's not very much overhang on the car. You've got a, a car which has a really uh, stubby appearance and, and a really quite dramatic appearance, which, which I think is terrific. The thing with fashion is that quite often, though, that you love people to be outrageous, but do you then go and buy something from Kmart? The initial car, I think, showed tremendous bravery and, um, and kudos to Nissan for continuing it, albeit in a slightly dumbed-down form. But the fact that they sold 1.5 million, was it, uh, David? Yeah. Of the Duke shows that, that there are people who are really interested to buy different quirky-looking cars that stand out from the norm. And these people are probably not at all interested in, in high performance or probably more likely to be interested in uh, alternate technologies. I think the Duke, in its original concept, would have been a wonderful uh, candidate for the technology that's in, say, the Nissan Leaf, uh, the EV. The front view of the car, take off the Nissan badge and, oh, it could could be almost anything. And also the, the 
the much larger radiator shape has really changed the front of the car and it's it's taken it from something really distinctive to, well, just another another car coming at you in the rear vision mirror. The rear of the car is lost its sort of space age compact capsule look. Yes. It's lost a low roof line because of very small windows and that is part of going back to what is really the norm. The current car also has changed the the appearance of the rear door and the unusual high-level door handle. The line around that back window has changed a little bit. It's lost a little bit of, the, uh, of that nice smooth form. And it's now got a vertical, a little stubby vertical appearance, which just visually slightly changes the the side form of the car and it's different. Dean you've hit on a point there if you look at the 2016 the C pillar the third pillar right near the tail looks a bit shark fin it looks narrow and shark fin the current one now looks a bigger block metal Yes, certainly, yes, yeah, yeah. And look, we should at this stage encourage listeners to uh, go to the Facebook page and have a look at these images that we're looking at. Otherwise, our ramblings will make no sense at all. In fact, we will have a video up on our YouTube site. Go and look for Driven Media, one word, and look for something like Duke in the near future. We'll keep you informed. Dean, that has been a lovely analysis of design more than just, hey, it looked a bit weird to start, but really, you would quite rightly say it's brave, yet in the, yes, minister sense, being brave. Courageous. <laughs> but still, it's sold 1.5 million, mate. Lovely to talk to you. Thanks very much for your time. Thanks, David. And that's Dean Oliver, our resident artist. And doesn't he add a sense of looking at the detail, but within the context of the overall image? I look at something and I think it's good or bad, but it's a reflection of a whole pile of nuances which reflect my background and my upbringing and all those things. And unless I look at those finer details, then I won't understand what the overall impact has done, will do, and might do in the future. You're listening to Overdrive. And some feedback this week. A few quick comments on the three dual-cab utes we took for a drive. The Mazda BT-50 was solid, bland in gunmetal grey, and lacked a few ute-type refinements, but it was good for ongoing reliability. The Volkswagen Amarok in black was powerful and had Germanic efficiency, but not quite the same level of comfort, but not quite the best level of comfort for the family, but good for towing. And finally, the Ford Ranger had a bright burnt orange paint job, good features, easy to use infotainment, small but quiet engine and best for the family. Now, for all the motoring talk about power and capability, we were taking some photos in the Hawkesbury showground. A tough-looking truck driver drove past, leant out the window and shouted, I will take the orange one. Image is everything. And talking about trucks, for the last few weeks we have ranted against car infotainment systems that are not easy to understand and use. A colleague who drove trucks for over 20 years said that he spent all his time in Kenworths. If he were to hop into another brand, he would struggle because of the different way the instruments are set out and the way the information is communicated. Many truck drivers have to swap vehicles, often quite frequently, 
and of course in the future car drivers will be encouraged to use different vehicles to best suit the circumstances perhaps sharing with other people massively different controls just makes it hard you're listening to overdrive Well, we often hear on the program our good friend Fred Brain, who comes with us as a mechanical engineer with both degree and experience. He has just been racing at Bathurst in the historic class where he pedalled around in his 1969 Holden Monaro. What was it like? Let's find out. G'day, Fred. Hi, Dave. Have you driven the Monaro at Bathurst before? Yeah, I've, I've had the opportunity to run there a number of times before, but uh, it's always good to go back. What was the first car you raced there? A Datsun 1600, which was the old rally car that uh, became a circuit racing car. So that was a little four-cylinder Japanese with an independent rear end and some pretty good brakes to the weight of the car. Did you notice any difference in the Monaro? Uh, yeah, brakes being the major issue there, yes. <laughs> big heavy car with brakes that are not so good <laughs> i was going to use the word lumbering but i was trying to be polite <laughs> if you had the choice of 40 more kilowatts an extra gear because you've only got a four-speed manual i presume and better brakes for the monaro around bathurst what would you take good question Actually, I think I'd go for the 40 kilowatts in actual fact. Is that because you're a hoon or because you're a true racer? Probably both. I'd like to think I'm a true racer, but you can never have too much horsepower. Coming down the fastest part of the circuit, Conrod Strait, before going into the kink onto the Caltex Chase, are you at peak revs in top gear? Probably not the maximum the engine's built for, just kind of the maximum maximum revs that I'm built for is probably closer to the truth. Probably topping out at maybe 130 mile an hour, I'd say. How fast do you take that first right-hand sweeper? Do you take it flat out? Yes, yes. When I'm when I'm confident the brakes are okay to pull up for the sharp left-hander in the chase, then, uh, yeah, I can get through that kink at the chase flat out. We saw the third race that you were participating in, and it appeared at one time you took that corner, you actually went into somewhat of an oversteer slide. Our colleagues noticed it. Were you aware of it? To be honest, I wasn't really. I, I don't recall having a particularly bad moment there. I do recall once breaking perhaps a little earlier when I was still turning a bit, which might have been that particular time, but I don't, uh, I don't recall having a bad moment where it um, started looking as, though, looking as though or feeling as though it was going to get away from me. I still look more spectacular from outside than inside. Maybe your mind was on other things. Maybe, yeah, maybe stopping for the left-hander was probably more, more imperative at that point. Before we ask about the brakes on his car, many years ago when Fred was entering the Monaro in his first event, I asked Peter Brock if he had any advice in driving such a classic Holden. His reply was succinct. My best advice is um, to put the brakes on very, very early. They've got nice steering, uh, they put power down pretty well, but um, the braking department has to be respected. It's, it's not very strong. Did you try different brakes over the weekend? Yeah, I, I started out with a, a different set of brake pads for the first two days because I knew my better pads wouldn't last me the whole three days. 
they were all partly worn, so I just used better pads on the third day. How big a difference did you notice? Enormous, quite honestly. Yeah, the difference was chalk and cheese between the, between the two different types of pads. Even though the first pads were race brake pads or race pads, but the uh, the second set were better race pads. I did try to catch you up on Friday night after some practice and that, but you were working on the car. Was it the brakes you were changing? Yeah, I did a change of change of pads on the um, on the Friday night or the Friday late Friday. Actually, on the Saturday, I changed discs as well as pads because the uh, better pads, they really made a mess of the discs that I had on on the first race on the Saturday. So I changed discs and fiddled around, changed the pads around from side to side to get the best sort of wear, ones that had the most, most wear left in them for the last race. Are they ventilated discs? Yes, we're allowed to run the equivalent of um, later model Holden discs, the HQ model. So they're ventilated, thicker discs, but the same diameter. You still have drums at the back? Yes. That would be a limitation? Somewhat of a limitation, yeah. You you kind of, well, you adapt to driving them is probably the bottom line, I think. You raced against some varied competition. I think you had a couple of good dices with some minis. Was that you up the straight and them round the corners? Essentially, yes, yeah. The chap you interviewed the other day, Chris Collette, he has a very fast mini. Even going up the mountain, he was quite fast. But certainly going down the mountain, he was very fast compared to myself. He actually overtook me in two separate races, once going over Skyline and then once going into the Dipper. <laughs> so he's a, a brave chap in a small mini, that's all I can say. What was your greatest defence there? Your size? <laughs> Essentially, yes, but I, I didn't try and block him too much. I figured he was he was going to make a move and he didn't need a lot of space to do it. So I just made sure I knew where he was to just leave a space for him to get by um, in braking areas is what it amounted to. Which part of the circuit do you think suited your car the best and which the least? Well, I suppose down through the S's, the downhill sharper bits suits it the least because of the sheer weight and size. And I suppose going up the mountain probably suits it the best, where you've got the sweeping sweeping corners. Griffin. The drive up mountain straight and then the sweeping corners to get up to the top. That's the most enjoyable, is it? Yes. Um, although the whole circuit is enjoyable, I have to say. Uh, but I do like the run up from the, from the cutting, the run from the cutting up to uh, McPhillamy Park. Uh, that's probably the bit that I'd say, yes, so... I like that because it flows flows very nicely. You can keep the foot on the pedal most of the way there. It must be hard coming on or through McPhillamy and onto Skyline where you have such a bulky car that the momentum could carry it off the track as much as it could push it along. Certainly driving the Datsun, as I recall, it's a few years since I did drive it there. It's about 20 years. Yeah, you certainly feel as though you can move it around on the track better than the Monaro. With the, the sheer weight of si- weight and size of the Monaro, you've got to aim it in a certain direction and brake and hopefully don't get it wrong. Whereas the Datsun, if you got a little bit wrong occasionally, you felt as though you, you still had time to correct it. Whereas the Monaro, I suspect if you got it wrong, you run out of time very quickly. The Mustangs do particularly well. Why? Power to weight is what it appears to be. They're, they're a relatively light car and they're running the uh, 289 
Ford V8, which they seem to be able to extract quite a lot of power out of now. And they run front disc brakes, so they, they stop fairly well. But that's the fundamentals of it, power to weight and being able to stop. They seem to be the car to have now in our category. There were a variety of other cars. Is there good camaraderie amongst the group? You don't really get a chance normally even just to interact with other classes? I probably wouldn't go and interact with other classes so much as just have a bit of a chat with other drivers, and we could still do that, the ones that are running in our category, plus also a couple of other categories. We could still still wander around and talk to talk to people, so it wasn't in our area of the paddock area. It, um, it wasn't a restriction. When I said other classes, I wasn't being socio-demographic. I was talking about categories of vehicles. <laughs> Not that we look down on other classes of vehicle, of course, but <laughs> the HQs weren't there. <laughs> but they're nice people. <laughs> and I can't say too much given mine's a Monaro. <laughs> and variety, is that part of its mystique? Yes, absolutely. I mean, every corner is just so different in terms of the camber and the slope into, out of, and around the corner. Every corner just has this different feel to it. You've never had problems concentrating, I guess. Uh, no, no, it's actually not been too bad. I think the uh, maybe the speed and the walls help you keep your con- concentration up, actually. <laughs> Did Pamela watch the races? No, she didn't see any of them, but it was all, always unclear. I, I didn't like to say this is the time we're on, watch the TV, because we were unsure what would actually be televised of our racing anyway. You're suggesting that she wasn't prepared to get an esky out, put her feet up and watch the whole uh, four days of events? No, no, I don't think she saw too much of it, actually. In fact, she probably didn't see any of it. (laughs) (laughs) If I know Pamela well, she probably read a novel and probably not the latest biography of Sir Jack Brabham, but that's another story. (laughs) No. Can I say, I thought it looked fantastic. If you look at the photos, I thought it looked less of a mashed-together race car. Even some of the Mustangs lose some of their mystique, I think, but the Monaro just kept its glorious shape. Could that be to do with your elegant paint job? Perhaps not so when you get a lot closer to it. The elegant paint job starts looking a little bit patchy. <laughs> but it's usually you say of a race car, if it looks good at 10 metres, it's okay. But mine, it's getting to the point, if it looks good at 20 metres, it's okay. <laughs> well, you're a very thorough lad, Fred. You do things with meticulous preparation. And for you to say it was rushed probably meant that you had about 25 lists of things to go with it and it probably took several months. But I don't say that in any derogatory term. It is with endearing respect. (laughs) I'll I'll take that as a compliment then. (laughs) I I do like hearing people say, wow, I saw your Monaro out on the track. It was so good to see one. And I think, yeah, okay, you put a smile on people's face, apart from putting one on my own face, driving around there anyway. Will you give them a chance to engage with something that they either experience firsthand or just appreciate the concept that things were different in the past 
and perhaps represented a much less manufactured, in the broader sense of the word, of putting a team together, a bit more of an adventure. The person in the backyard shed putting together something that can be a great deal of fun. It also takes to have a very understanding partner. Yeah, that can help. (laughs) True enough. All the best to Pamela and, and thanks again. Okay, all right, no worries. And that was Fred Brain, who has, on many occasions, enlightened us with his knowledge as a mechanical engineer, but also as a person who embraces an adventure, looks at it in detail, conducts it with meticulous preparation and time commitment, all to the enjoyment of both himself and to those around him. And this has been Overdrive. My thanks to Dean Oliver, Fred Brain, Brian Smith and Paul Just for their great help in putting this program together. Overdrive is syndicated across Australia on the Community Radio Network. For more information, go to drivenmedia.com.au or previous programs are available as podcasts on iTunes or Spotify. Or there's our Facebook page, Overdrive City. I'm David Brown. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 